This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I am Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone. Well, I've got a great guest coming up here on today's episode, my old friend, John Schwartz, uh, who writes for The Intercept. Um, he worked on my film, Capitalism, a Love Story. Great guy, um, great thinker, funny. So I'm looking forward to try to cover a number of things with him. We can fit it all in here within the hour. It'd be great. So please stick around for that. It's just coming up here in a few minutes. And thanks to all of you out there, all you listeners who gave me some great and incredible feedback on episode 197, which was called Welcome to the Department of Restorative Justice and Redemption. And my guest, Dan Berger, who uh, has written and uh, worked on this issue of mass incarceration for so many years. Great feedback, great ideas. Let's stay with this topic, the topic of what we're going to do to get rid of the systems that we have had for so many years that don't work, whether it's policing, whether it's incarceration, uh, what we call justice. All of this, we can fix. We can fix all of this and have a better, safer, kinder society. And, and help those who fall between the cracks, who make mistakes. We can do this better. We can do this better. And so we will stay with this topic here for the rest of this year, frankly. Uh, every now and then when we have time to come back to it, I'm going to come back to it and present new ideas on what we can do uh, to have a more just society uh, than the one that we have uh, right now. So please keep sending me your feedback to mike at michaelmore.com. It's that easy. I read every email. I don't have time to respond to all of them. I'm sorry for that, but I do read them. And you can leave me a voicemail. There's a link here on my podcast platform page and just click on that. And, and there's a 60 second uh, thing where you can just record. And I listen, I listen to, to all the, uh, the voicemails. So a lot is going on this week in the world, in this country, the latest where Biden has compromised with the uh, conservative Democrats and uh, moderate <clears throat> Republicans. Re- I don't know, what's he done? He's reduced this, the original $2 trillion infrastructure bill because he said infrastructure has to do with climate, it has to do with child care. It's not just bridges and roads. Well, he, ga- he gave in essentially to the Republicans. They, they probably won't vote for it anyways because they, they don't care now if you give in, but it's like down to $580 billion down from the whatever it was, a trillion and a half, two trillion. It's not going to work. Uh, we've got to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight for all these things. The majority of Americans have made their voices very clear that they wanted the Democratic-controlled Senate, House, and White House. And the policies that we believe in are the policies that the majority of our fellow Americans agree. Uh, and so let's make sure we do that. Um, listen, so we, before we bring John on uh, here as my guest, um, I want to thank our underwriter, for today's episode, Netflix once again has come through uh, to support this podcast, to support my voice. And I want to thank them, first of all, and then point out that they have this uh, excellent documentary series going on right now called High on the Hog How African American Cuisine Transformed America. This is a wonderful documentary series, and you will be hungry while you're watching it. Now, this series was directed by Roger Ross Williams, who is an Academy Award-winning 
documentary filmmaker and actually one of our great documentary filmmakers right now. I hired him, geez, I don't know, when was that, 20, 25 years ago? He worked with me on my uh, television series. Wonderful guy. And this series of his is based on the book, High on the Hog, by food historian Jessica B. Harris. It's a beautifully shot travelogue, actually, that honors and celebrates the traditions and the heritage and the artistry of black food and black chefs that have helped define the American kitchen. This is something you rarely see on any of these other channels. So you're going to salivate while watching this over Western African stews, soul food, barbecue, and fine dining. You'll learn the culinary history that was shaped by slavery and the Civil War and Juneteenth, right up until present day events. This is an intelligent, thoughtful, entertaining documentary series. And did I mention it's very appetizing? So there's a reason everyone's talking about this wonderful series, High on the Hog. Find out why. The praise for it is much deserved. So please watch this. I've watched it. It's incredible. And I'll have a link for it on the description page right here of my podcast. So you can click on it and watch it. And thanks again, Netflix, for uh, supporting my voice, supporting this podcast, supporting nonfiction works of art. It's greatly appreciated, not just by documentary filmmakers, but by all Americans and people around the world who believe in facts and who love the truth. A news story popped up in my notifications this week, and maybe some of you might have missed it. It's one of those stories, and this happens every week. I know you probably see the same thing go on, where you go, oh my God, this is so... I can't believe this. And then it's the last you hear of it. I mean, somebody might mention it once or twice and then it's gone. And I hate it. I hate it when they're gone. It's, this particular story this week reveals many truths about how the world works um, and too often gets forgotten as we move on to the next distraction. So here's the headline from the New York Times. This is how it read. Saudi operatives who killed Khashoggi received paramilitary training in the U.S. And then it goes on to say, the training approved by the State Department underscores the perils of military partnerships with repressive governments. Wow. I saw that and I was like, not only was the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi murdered by the American government's close ally, Saudi Arabia, but the operatives who carried out the assassination were given paramilitary training in the U.S. one year earlier under a contract approved by our State Department. Khashoggi's body was dismembered using a bone saw. What kind of State Department-funded training is this? Jeez. Before anyone argues that, well, Mike, of course, you know, America did brutal and ugly things and Donald Trump was our president, I must point out to you what this article says. Quote, The State Department initially granted this license for the paramilitary training of the Saudi Royal Guard 
to these American contractors starting in, drumroll please, 2014 during the Obama administration. The training continued during at least the first year of the former president known as Donald Trump. My friends, if I have said this once, I've said it a thousand times. Donald Trump did not just fall from the sky. He was actually the perfect embodiment of American cruelty and inhumanity. And while removing him from office was thoroughly necessary, I don't even need to state that, do I? It is this cruelty and inhumanity that we must now extinguish. And whenever I think of cruelty and inhumanity, I think of my guest today on Rumble, John Schwartz. John is one of my favorite writers, thinkers, humorists. He always keeps a close eye on the inner workings of the American empire and never allows us to forget these ugly details. John always has a great eye for irony and a deep commitment to undoing the propaganda that our media, our educational system, and our culture bombards us with on a daily basis. John currently writes for The Intercept. He's also contributed to The New Yorker, The New York Times, Slate, as well as NPR, and yes, in his younger years, Saturday Night Live. And a full disclosure, uh, John used to work for me as a researcher on Capitalism, A Love Story, and way back in the day, he ran michaelmoore.com. So it is a huge pleasure and an honor to have my old friend here with me for the first time here on Rumble, John Schwartz. John, how are you? Well, I'm great. Thank you for saying so many kind things. I should say that, you know, working with you, working with everybody else uh, on Capitalism Love Story, the other stuff too, uh, it was a huge education in how to cause trouble. (laughs) Well, thank you. I think that's a compliment. Yeah. Thank you for that. You have continued to do this though, and I'm I'm so grateful. And so... When I saw this article, uh, Basil and I were talking, man, this, this is right up John's alley. And then you, like so many times, start to write about these things before we're even trying to kind of gather our thoughts. And, and I, I want to start here, but I, I have a bunch of things I want to throw at you because my head is spinning and I think the heads of millions of Americans and people around the world are spinning right now. So if we could just start with Khashoggi and give me your take on this and what it is we can do about it because i do not want this story to die yeah well i mean this is the kind of thing where if you know anything about u.s history you read it and you're like wow like this is incredibly shocking and incredibly unsurprising you know it's it's the kind of thing that is like as ugly as it gets with human beings and yet at the same time the kind of thing that we've done a million times before and uh I think people should look at this story and look at a little bit of the background. You know, first of all, the company that did the training, Tier One Group, it's owned by a private equity firm, which is called uh, Cerberus Capital Management. And uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, people may know Cerberus is the the three-headed dog that guards the gates of hell in mythology to prevent people from escaping from hell. That's not just a, that's not a joke. That's actually that's true. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, if people name their company that, you kind of get where they're coming from from the beginning. And, and if you want to think, like, this is 
you know, okay, so Obama was involved, the Trump State Department was involved, but it's still an anomaly. Well, one of the top officials at this private equity firm is George H.W. Bush's vice president, Dan Quayle. Like, mm. this oh, is okay. the people who, who run this country, and this is the way they see the world, and this is the kind of thing they do. And you kind of got to face that and figure out, you know, how to go on from there. So, okay. So, again, as you said, not surprising. And I don't know why it is. Probably because, you know, sometimes I just don't want to think about this stuff. And so I, you read a you read a horrible headline or, or even a, you know, when it happened, when the assassination of Khashoggi took place, you know, your brain should just automatically by now go to this, to, to this default that says, oh, we had a hand in this somewhere. We, the United States government, you know, somebody, somebody did something with this, 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 and, and sure enough, we learn now this week, some years now after his death, that we did have a hand, that a private contractor from our State Department, and back during, it was back during the Obama administration, trained these assassins to commit their crimes on whatever they were going to do with the training that, that we gave them. I mean, I, mean, I don't, I, I worry when, when people hear this and they listen to this podcast that they just start to sink, like, oh, jeez, of course. What do same old, same old, what do we do about this now? And I want to like jump out of my chair and go, there is something we can do. I'm not quite sure what it is at this moment, but I refuse to let this be done in my name, with my tax dollars. And, um, you know, somebody's going to have to pay for this. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I would say like, even though it is no surprise I don't think people should read the story and just like give up in despair. You know, like one of the things about this story is that they felt it was necessary to keep it secret, you know, like it, in yeah, the past. That speaks, that speaks highly of us. Ex- exactly. They're, like, so, like, they're, they're that worried about us. Right. They, they know that if normal Americans were to find out about this, like it would really cause some trouble for them. And, and that wasn't necessarily the case in the past. I mean, America has done some pretty awful things uh, without feeling the need to cover it up. So, like, that in and of itself is progress. And even though they're never going to tell us that it was, like, like weirdos you know, yelling about this stuff in the past that caused them to keep this secret, it actually was. And the more you yell about it, the more, like, you go, like, like go and, and talk to your, like, your elected representatives. I know that seems like, you know, a sort of, like, school book thing to do, but... There are a lot of people in Congress who actually are outraged about this, will continue to be outraged about it. They don't want the country to run like this. And uh, it is it is not necessarily the case that nothing can be done. I think that we should start from the premise that something can be done. Things have changed in the past. They can change again. Well, I believe that. And I guess what I'll say is, is that to people listening, first of all, I'd love to hear your ideas. You know, you can always write me here at the bottom. There's a link on this podcast page. Um, you can leave me a voicemail. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. And I, I'm going to be thinking about it. And I, I don't, I won't let this drop. I will, I'm going to stay on this because this, this has to end. This, this kind of behavior that's done in our name um, has to be brought uh, to an end. And the, the main thing right now, I guess, John, is and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today, one of a number of reasons I want to, things I want to get into with you 
is that that story from the past week just doesn't fade away. Yeah. This is what I always worry about. You know, it's just so much going on and it comes and it goes. Well, here's, here's the thing. Uh, I just read a proverb for the first time that I had never seen before, which I think is a good thing to keep in mind about this kind of stuff, which is um, the ax forgets, but the tree remembers. Mm. And wow. Regular people are the tree continually being uh, hit with the axe. Like it's, it's our job, like, like to do that, to be the remembering part. And it's natural for the people in charge to try to throw this away and make it vanish from history. And uh, if you take seriously anything about politics, like you realize that just remembering stuff and bringing it up again and again and again really does make a difference. They, they, there's nothing that they hate more than that. And, you know, you can see that in what's going on all over the country. It's like like all the state governments where they're like, you know, we're going to make teaching actual history illegal. Uh, like there's, there's a good reason for that. They know what they're doing. So I agree with you. Like this, this story says so much about how the world works that it's really important that we remember it. I bet that there is more that is going to come out and uh, we should keep talking about that whenever that happens. Right. And, and, not, and not be bullied by it. Not, like, like you mentioned, the... The history they don't want us to know. They, the 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 big the bugaboo of the week is uh, critical race theory, must not be taught uh, in our schools, and and then when I'm watching the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff yesterday in Congress, like dressing them down for how dare you say we don't talk about this or learn about it or try to understand, uh, you know, institutional racism in this country. First of all. On the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. That was just the last thing I expect to see out of the mouth of the, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and yet, you know, it, it, I thought, yes, everybody, take, take a cue from this guy and stand up. Again. Don't let this happen in your local school districts this is so important that we teach our children about this and how we got here, how we got here racially. It's, it's, this is one of the most important things we need to be talking about in schools these days. But, but the way that they, they go after, <clears throat> well, you've got a thing uh, in the intercept today coming up here about the, the whole concept of the, the moral equivalency. Can we just talk about that for a second? And, and about our, the Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar and what she's had to go through in the last couple of weeks, because she just happened to point out that a lot of bad things are done in the world by a lot of different people. Some of those bad things are done by the United States. Some of them are done by Israel. Sorry to have to point that out to everybody. Uh, I know you oppose the court's investigation in both um, Palestine and in Afghanistan. I haven't seen any evidence in either cases that domestic courts can uh, both can and will prosecute alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. 
And I would emphasize that in Israel and Palestine, uh, this includes crimes committed by both the Israeli security forces and Hamas. In Afghanistan, it includes crimes committed by the Af Afghan national government and the Taliban. And man, did the world come down on her. Yeah, I, people probably saw this happening. It was extremely ugly and awful because what she was talking about specifically was that the International Criminal Court in 2020 had opened investigations into atrocities committed on all sides in Afghanistan. So that means you know, the U.S. government, NATO, the government of Afghanistan, and the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And they had opened an investigation into uh, conflicts between Israel and you know, Palestinians. And so that's what she was referencing. You know, like, we should have a neutral arbiter enforcing the law equally. And people went nuts. It was incredible to see. But the thing that was the most interesting to me was that they used this term moral equivalence. And uh, this, this is a terrible crime. She didn't actually say, like, the United States is morally equivalent to Hamas. She didn't say that at right. all. But right. they, they love this term, which is this, this term of propaganda. Like, it's very rare that you can say, like, propaganda was invented here at this place on this date. But that actually is true with moral equivalence. It's a term from the Reagan administration that was invented by his State Department and the most prominent uh, neoconservatives of that era uh, to defend him from criticism of the unbelievably awful foreign policy that his administration was conducting, especially in Central America. And so I wanted to do with this article to, to just look remind people of this history. I think almost no one remembers this anymore. Uh, it's, it's only uh, oddballs like ourselves <laughs> who think about things that happened. You know, this is 35 years ago. Thanks for including me. Yeah, you. yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but explain this because I just found this fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, so what happened was that uh, the neoconservatives uh, became very concerned that, you know, carping intellectuals with uh, their hatred of America and so forth were uh, criticizing the United States too much. And they held a conference in 1985, as I say, sponsored by the State Department that was called Moral Equivalence, False Images of U.S. and Soviet Values. And so this is people like Jean Kirkpatrick, you know, again, probably somebody who's largely forgotten now, but she was uh, very prominent then. She was Reagan's ambassador to the U.N. Uh, William Bennett, who was the Secretary of Education. He later wrote a, uh, like a bestseller that was something like, like a treasury of values. <laughs> it's all about bringing, bringing America back to traditional values. Uh, and what they wanted to say, like it's, it's a term that is intended to bully people into silence. Like if you criticize America, like how can you do that? Because the Soviet Union is so much worse. And mm. then the Soviet Union collapsed, but moral equivalence continued onward. Like you can look at, like Google has this really amazing feature that allows you to see how frequently words were used in books over the past 200 years. What you can see is that moral equivalence barely ever appeared in the English language until the 1980s, until the Reagan administration created it. And then it exploded. And even after the Soviet Union disappeared, the politicians and uh, pundits found it so useful that it continues to this day. It's constantly used. Uh, the British government, <laughs> during the beginning of the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, 
Uh, they said that merely quoting the Taliban was moral equivalence. Uh, Dick Cheney said that criticizing the Bush administration for torture was moral equivalent. So they love it. It's just a term intended to shut you up. But if you think about it for one second, you realize that it doesn't make any sense at all. Like, what is moral equivalence? What is the yardstick that we're using here? And so it's really, whenever you hear this, you should understand that, that the people using it are uh, morally bankrupt and you should ignore them. I mean, just, just before this happened with Ilhan Omar, uh, Mitch McConnell was accusing Nancy Pelosi of moral equivalence. So uh, what was he going after her for when he said that? Uh, that, that was because uh, she was saying that there should be a ceasefire, like in, in the recent conflict between Gaza and Israel. And uh-huh. uh, that was that was moral equivalence, putting uh, Hamas and the Israeli government on the same level. So anyway, it's just right, because Nancy Pelosi is such a huge Hamas supporter. <laughs> That's yeah. right. There's nothing more that, that Nancy Pelosi loves than Hamas. Right, right. So, so how do we deal with this? I mean, I guess just being aware of it is probably the most important thing that when, when you're being bamboozled with this term and, 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 and put on the defensive, which you should never be, uh, that somehow you're, you're morally inept for uh, raising issues, drawing comparisons, um, or just talking about two different things in the same sentence to not let them get away with that. Right, exactly. I mean, here's the way I think people should look look at this. There are two possibilities here, right? The first possibility is that America, you know, we started out as 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard. Then we took over most of North America. Uh, Now we have like 800 military bases all over the world in 70 countries. And uh, we did this just by being super, super nice. You know, like that's that's one possibility. And yeah. uh, the other yeah. possibility is that we're just like other huge empires throughout history. And uh, sometimes empires do things that are morally like pretty good. Most of the time what they do is awful and truly evil. And uh, in this article, I, I use this quote from, from Thomas Merton, who is a, a poet and also a monk, a, a really interesting guy. And in 1962, he was uh, corresponding with a friend of his about the very beginnings of Vietnam. So he saw it coming long before most everybody else. And he said, the world is full of great criminals with enormous power, and they are in a death struggle with each other. It is a huge gang battle of supremely well-armed and well-organized gangsters. Let us avoid false optimism and approved gestures and seek truth. And... I find that uh, like mm, incredibly right. profound. Like, yeah, avoid approved gestures. Avoid things meant to stop you from thinking. And uh, I'll just mention. I, I think it's the end of the big one, uh, if I'm remembering right. Like where you say like one evil empire down, one to go. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't. I don't think you can look at the history of the United States honestly and and think that we are a shining beacon of morality. Like that doesn't mean that people in the United States are awful. Like I like Americans. I like us, but it means that you just shouldn't have faith in governments. Like I thought that was a conservative idea, right? Like I thought conservatives were the ones who are supposed to be skeptical of government power. Uh, And I agree with that. I I think you should always be skeptical of skeptical of governments. Um, So anyway, it's just, it's, it's it's nonsense. Uh, I, I quoted, George Orwell in 1984, 
talking about this kind of propaganda, I think people should should keep that in mind where he said it's just sort of like, it's not even human speech. It's not somebody using their brain. It, it just sounds like a duck quacking. Yeah. This is so important to point out, uh, John, because the right always seems to get away with it. They just invent these terms. And, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't, why don't we come up with our own language? Just take a page out of their book and start using language, words, to change the world for the better, not do it in the way that they do it. We have a few smart people on our side of the fence, right? Can't we do this, what they do, but do it for a good cause? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that we could do this. And it is kind of amazing. Like, you know, people who like words, like, do tend to be uh, sort of progressive. Like, that, those two things often go together. And people, you know, who, who hate words and hate the fact that they can be used for honest communication, uh, you know, tend to be conservative. And so I, I completely agree with you. I think it's amazing that, that progressives have failed like this, but that doesn't mean that we can't succeed in the future. You know, there's some really, really interesting experiments, I think, happening online right now uh, where, where people are recognizing that. So I think there should be a lot more of that. And uh, I'm confident that we can do it. The only problem is that, you know, what you really want is for people to encourage people to think these things through for themselves. And... That's a much more uh, long and laborious project than just shutting down thought. And it takes longer, but I think you get better results in the long run. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can pull it off. You know, I have a, a huge amount of uh, admiration for Ilhan Omar representing the people of Minneapolis there in, in Congress. Um, but this pylon that seems to take place every few months on her, where Republicans and Democrats get together to just beat up on her, try to weaken her influence. They tried very hard to get her removed in the last election. She was up for her second uh, term, and she crushed it. She won by an overwhelming uh, majority. But I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this pylon that that the leadership does on her, and I want it to stop, and I don't want them to get away with it, and and I want... I want our kids, I want people across the country to listen to her because she's saying some very important things. Yeah, I, I'm complete w- completely with you. She's an extremely impressive person. Be willing to like stand up, tell the truth, and yeah. face so. the weird, crazy, scary consequences. And again, this is something where, like, like this is not foreordained. Like, you can go and yell at your elected representatives, particularly people in the House. And you saw some people who were willing to stand up and say, like, this is wrong. Like, we should not be doing this on the Democratic side. There, there were not a ton yes, of people. finally. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that was great to see. And there, there could be more, you know? And so that's, that's something that is in our hands. Like, that's something that, that we can make happen. And so uh, I encourage people to think about that and to do it. You brought up the Israel-Gaza uh, tragedy that's been going on, the... Uh, the killing of so many civilians uh, in Gaza uh, by the um, Israeli military. During all of this, there was another little story that happened here in the U.S. regarding this savagery that was going on, and that got very little notice. An AP reporter by the name of Emily Wilder, and you wrote about this, you wrote about her, they fired her. The AP fired her. As CNN reported uh, the story, John, 
Um, they wrote, uh, before joining the Associated Press, Emily Wilder was an active member of pro-Palestinian groups at her college. She was a proponent of Palestinian, now hold on to your seats here, Palestinian human rights and a critic of the Israeli government. Last week, during the height of the recent war, war, I love that, the war between Israel and the Palestinians, a nuclear power versus people that are sending up little helium balloons with some uh, lighter fluid in them. Um, The Stanford College Republicans, okay, this is a group, they called out Wilder for her tweets, and soon after, the AP fired her, a unanimous decision among senior managers at the AP. The AP believes that Wilder's tweets could have put its journalists in danger. If a perception exists that the AP is taking sides in a conflict, it could endanger journalists who are reporting inside a war zone, as AP journalists were doing at the time. Wilder was tweeting. This blew my mind. So, so they go back to what she did in college as a citizen, as a student, um, and for that, she should be fired from her first job here at the AP in Arizona. I mean, this is a, a perfect example of something that I've believed for a long time, which is that cancel culture, political correctness, like, it's a huge problem in America. Absolutely. The thing is, 90% of it comes from the right. And like, there is like progressive left-wing cancel culture, and I think that's pernicious, and I think that people should like be concerned about it. But the fact is, this is the kind of thing that happens every single day, and no one ever talks about it. It's just taken to be like, like well, this is just the way the way the world works. But this is what cancel culture is. Emily Wilder, uh, she, she's only 22, I believe. She just graduated from college. She got you know this entry-level position at the Associated Press, uh, working in Arizona, I believe, uh, just on Arizona politics, like not working on U.S. foreign policy or anything having to do with Israel. And during this conflict, she like retweeted some things <laughs> and said like said some things herself that that I think were all like pretty anodyne and straightforward. And then she immediately got fired. And this was thanks to a right-wing pressure campaign. Uh, I think even like Tom Cotton was talking about this, like this 22-year-old as this terrible danger to American society. Uh, and we don't know exactly why she was fired because the Associated Press, like devoted to uncovering the truth, refuses to say. You know, so we don't know what precisely she did, but she violated their social media policy somehow. And I just wanted to write something to remind people that you know, the media is always like they're oh they're they're so amazingly liberal. Well, the history of AP actually is that it's a very conservative organization. You know, it is one of the most important news organizations in America. Like they often are the only people at this point covering certain stories. Right. Uh, but their history shows like who they are. This should have been no surprise that they immediately fired her. It's like in their DNA. It was formed by five New York newspapers during the Mexican-American War, uh, whenever that was, like the, the 1840s, when we just yeah. stole this yeah. gigantic chunk of Mexico. Which, yeah. You know, is, is now, I think, like what, 
like California and uh, lots of Texas and Texas. Yeah, and then yeah, there's a key word in one of the places that we we stole. It's called New Mexico. Uh, <laughs> but it's just they should have they should have just called it you know Columbus or something. Uh, our Mexico. They, yeah, our our Mexico. Uh, but just leaving the word Mexico in there sort of implies it's not really ours. Um, but anyway, so yes, yeah, so so the tell the story though the AP. Of, of being why they've always been traditionally very conservative that isn't exactly as balanced as they would try to they want you to think right well so it was five new york newspapers they wanted to cover the mexican-american war uh that was costly so they decided to you know share the cost of it and, and create this like syndicate uh where they would just pay for uh coverage and then they, all the newspapers could use it and it's like just this by itself is this kind of amazing story. Uh, the, the guy, Moses Yale Beach, who is the publisher of the New York Sun, uh, this is how objective AP was from the start. Uh, during the war, he traveled to Mexico uh, like on orders from the U.S. government using a false passport uh, in an attempt to undermine the Mexican war effort. And so, like, again, like, uh, he, he should probably be fired for uh, that violation of objectivity, the founder of AP. It, it went on, they went on to do things like, uh, like, the first AP correspondent who died during a war uh, was a guy named Mark Kellogg. Uh, this was 1876. Uh, he was leaving to go cover the Battle of Little Bighorn. And his last dispatch was, by the time this reaches you, we will have met and fought the Red Devils. With what result remains to be seen, I go with Custer and will be there at the death. And uh, the death wow. was not like, I, I may be in danger of dying. At the death was a phrase from fox hunting where like you're there when the animals are run to ground and killed. So he was anticipating going to see the Red Devils being slaughtered. Again, how liberal can you get? Uh, and, <laughs> uh, you know, to, to this guy's surprise... Both he and Custer ended up dead instead, instead of uh, killing these inhuman creatures. Um, that went on with, like during the late 1900s, the early 20th century. They were extraordinarily anti-labor. Uh, they they tried to get, and almost succeeded, getting like other journalists thrown in jail for making fun of them. Like there's a famous cartoon about the AP where they almost made that happen. Uh, and there's a great book, uh, Upton Sinclair, uh, famous for the jungle, uh, the sort of muckraking book about the meat industry in the early 20th century, uh, wrote another book that was very famous at the time called The Brass Check, which is all about the news industry and how terrible it was in the U.S. And a big section of the book is about AP, uh, and just, just their lies and their unwillingness to ever correct their lies. Seymour Hersh said that uh, he, he, you know, he worked for AP for a while because it actually does provide like good training for journalists in, in the beginning of their careers. And there are tons of great journalists who work for the AP. It's just like the management would allow them to tell the truth. Uh, he, he said he could never have covered the Mulai massacre for AP. And uh, most recently, uh, one of the ugliest examples of this is that uh, Robert Perry and Brian Barger were AP reporters in Central America, and they were covering the story about how we were supporting the Contras, uh, the Contras who were trying to overthrow the government of Nicaragua. And 
they had uncovered what you know what we now know to be the truth with the CIA itself has acknowledged is true is that a lot of the leaders of the Contras were involved in cocaine smuggling. A lot of this cocaine ended up in the United States. The, the Central Intelligence Agency knew about this and didn't do anything because the Contras were too valuable to us. And so they stopped any investigation of what was going on. And, and here's the hilarious thing. Like, this is how history is made. Uh, these guys had filed their story. And AP made them go through this crazy round of edits, taking out a lot of the most important stuff, and then finally killed it. But it was still there in the AP computer system. And like a, a nighttime Spanish language editor, you know, because they also have a, a Spanish language wire, saw it in the system, didn't realize it was not supposed to be published, and ran it. Mm. It just, it, it just it, you know, it, it was uh, just escaped. <laughs> it escaped from the lab. Wow. And then, then AP had to actually publish it in English. So it's just, th this is who AP is. This is, uh, as I say, one of the most important news organizations in the United States. And they often does not try to prevent the truth from getting out. And again, I want to emphasize, like that's, that's the management. There are tons and tons of really, really good AP reporters, but it's a struggle for them to uh, report the news. John, let me, if I can just, uh, can I go into another thing that you've written about here uh, lately that has caught my eye? And it's, it, this has just driven me crazy. And, you know, for those of us uh, who did grow up in the working class, who come from union families, um, who understand what the struggle is all about when it comes to work and being paid properly and, and having some form of benefits to make life a little easier. Uh, you, uh, the, the, the press has been harping on this thing over the last couple of weeks that businesses just can't find workers. You know, there's the workers aren't coming back to work. And the reason they're not coming back to work is because we've given them too much unemployment. We've given them too much, uh, stimulus money and and we got to stop handing out all this free money because they're not coming back to work to flip some burgers and to and to be a, you know i just this thing is just sort of every time and it seems like every day there's some story about the worker shortage and and you wrote about this and i just thought man you know you really nailed this in the sense that um what are they really trying to say here uh, when they're when they're talking about this, and why why are they punking on working people, often the working poor, who um, have been uh, perhaps wanting to take their time and think about the you know getting back to the old normal because the old normal hasn't been very good for the working people of this country. And, and now they have some leverage to um, say, you know what, maybe work in America should be looked at in a different way. And maybe you're going to have to treat us differently. I'll just let you take it from there because I, I just thought what you were saying about this. And, and again, very little criticism of the media. Just now they've got their, the new moral equivalency is now the worker shortage Oh my God, the worker shortage. Uh, just, just share share with the people listening to this episode um, your thoughts about this. Yeah, well, I hope people can read this. You have to understand the, the idea of a worker shortage, like whatever that is. 
like in the context of history. And I would actually say your your family is an important example of that history. Like I've I've always believed that like people may not know this, but like you're not the only person in your family. Like you're not the only sibling who has caused enormous irritation to the people running the world. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, you know, I, I know the activities of your, your sister Anne the best. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I guarantee you that there are a lot of people in a lot of offices who are very unhappy about Anne Moore. And like, <laughs> I, I think that like, like if you're the people in charge and, and they look at the, the Moore family and the three siblings and like we let like one guy, one dad create a decent life for his family working in an auto plant. And then look what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Look, look, like you give this one family this little bit of a wiggle room, and they go crazy. Like we've <laughs> we've got to shut this down immediately. Right, but this is the story of millions of families, though, and 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 millions of people who were raised by moms and dads who worked on assembly lines, who worked in cubicles, who worked, you know, scrubbing floors, and. Uh, what we called our essential workers that we were so, you know, so grateful for during the pandemic. And now, uh, since things have started to open up a little bit, now it's time to go back to punking on the the people who are the people who take care of you and who keep your floors clean and who build your cars and all this other stuff. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, I just want to call the media out on this. It's, it's, uh, and tell the real story as to why, why working people in this country um, are, are um, not only just still trying to survive to get through this pandemic, it's not over for them. Um, and they've lost so many people in their families and their extended families, 600,000 plus, just in this country. Um, they deserve more respect than being ridiculed, it seems, on the news every day for sitting around, sitting around, you know, with their big stimulus checks, uh, not getting back and doing the work we need them to do. Right. It's, it's incredible. Like, it is as, like, it is so uniform in the media and so uniform among politicians. It, it makes you think that there must be, like, some, like, central office where they're sending out marching orders. And I don't think that's <laughs> actually true. But just, like, the uniformity of it is amazing. And, and to understand it, to understand why they're so angry— you really have to go back and look at this long, long history of the idea of worker shortages. Because if you have some sort of big business enterprise, there's a core problem, which is how do you get people to do terrible jobs for terrible pay? Like, like what, what is the answer to that? And, you know, originally the answer in North America was slavery. Like, you just don't give them any choice. And uh, I think people don't know that uh, Native Americans were subjected to a lot of slavery. Like there was, there were many, many, there are millions and millions of enslaved Native Americans. But it was a problem because it, it just, it was hard to maintain. Like often uh, people who are enslaved, like, like the society that they were from was not that far away. So they could just run off and like rejoin you know, all the people that they knew. And uh, so this this created a worker shortage. This was the first worker shortage. And so that's one of the reasons why they're like, hey, let's let's steal a lot of people from Africa and enslave them. Uh, 
And the amazing thing is, like, like eventually, you know, slavery was abolished. It was, uh, you know, the, the British abolished slavery uh, in the 1830s. But this, this really is crazy when you look back at it, just how straightforward they were. Because they were like, okay, yeah. we're getting rid of slavery, but we still need people to work on our plantations. So right. how do we square that circle? And so they were particularly worried that there, were, there was a lot of land available where people could just go off and like farm the land and they'd be able to support themselves and they wouldn't want to work at these terrible jobs. And so they, this is a direct quote from, uh, from one of these guys said like, we need to fix such a price upon crown lands as may place them out of reach of persons without capital. Wow. Just, just saying it straightforward. Another guy uh, in Parliament said, "So honest." Yeah, I know. It's like it's like. Well, thank you, thank you for being uh, so open and straightforward about this. <laughs> uh, another guy in Parliament, the British Parliament, said, "Like the danger is that the whole of the laboring population of the West Indies should, as soon as they become entirely free, refuse to work for wages, and that thus capitalists should be left without laborers." It's like, well, okay, you know, like wow. at least at least we're, we're facing the problem, uh, <laughs> right? Head on, <laughs> and and so uh, that's pretty much how things worked out. Like they they wanted to make sure there was no like uh, way for people to use sort of like public resources. The crown lands were public lands, right? That would prevent them from showing up to work every day on time, and. They, they also, I, I didn't mention this. It's also kind of amazing how straightforward they were about this. They also discussed how they had to addict people to consumerism, that they needed mm. people to be obsessed with acqui- acquiring like little meaningless trinkets and that the only way they could get the trinkets was by, you know, working for wages and that if they just supported themselves, like they would be free and, and they wouldn't have to answer to anyone. But, you know, they, they wouldn't have like the latest dresses from London and stuff like that. Right, right. Uh, and so that story has been reenacted over and over and over again over the past hundreds of years. It happened in another form in England. Uh, and that's exactly the thing that's happening today. Like people were getting some kind of public support, like not so much that they're going to go out and and blow it on a new car. Like they're not going to buy a Porsche with this money, but it does give them a little wiggle room. It does give them some leverage. And you can imagine a world where they would want to come back to work, where, you know, like jobs don't have to be horrible. Like they, they really don't. Like jobs can, can be a lot of fun. Even things that we think of as like menial tasks, if you have control over them, maybe, maybe businesses could pay people better. They could allow workers to set their own, you know, conditions for work. They could give workers ownership of, you know, part of the enterprise. But they're not interested in that. Like the people around the world like this, those are not things that capture their imagination. They want everybody to come back to work for the federal minimum wage, which is seven twenty-five an hour, or you know, like even better, like the tipped wage, which is even less. So as I say, it's just like it's a core problem of how capitalism works. Uh, they only have one answer for it, and that's what we've been seeing happening now. And what? Should, how should people, you know, when they're just talking to friends or family, and this issue comes up about? Yeah, you know, uh, Bill's bar down there. He just can't get enough workers. And 
what what is what what is the clear and simple way to explain uh, this uh, uh, critical capitalism theory uh, to be to people when what, what, what's really going on here? What is the media and the government and the rich really saying when they're complaining about this uh, so-called worker shortage? Yeah, I mean, the message really is the message that they have for all of us is like, you better get back to work or you're going to starve to death. And they always want that threat to be hanging over everybody. And the other way of looking at it, which is the right way, the true way of looking at it, is that like the world, like, like, like America is an incredibly rich country and this wealth was created by everybody. You know, uh, that's, that's just a fact. Like that's a basic fact. Jeff Bezos didn't invent the internet. You know, the inventor, the internet was invented by all of us. It was, in fact, like based on a ton of government research and spending. And so, the idea that the super duper wealthy can just use this stuff, like capture the wealth that was created by all of us, is just is morally wrong, and it leads to a world that is much much uglier than it needs to be. And so. Like these are really deep questions, but once people start thinking about them, I think that they like grasp it pretty quickly. And just I, I would really encourage, yes. like, like a lot of people just understand this intuitively, right? Because it's obvious, <laughs> depending on the family you right. grew up in and what kind of life you've had. Yeah. Yes. Yes. My family understands it, right? And and I think a lot of people um, who've you know grown up that way, but but what. Why? Why does the media participate in this? Because some, many of them, grew up in a working class home. Many of them saw their parents struggle. Uh, why even put this kind of propaganda out there like this during this time when we're trying, trying to get back to um, some sense of of people being able to get by, just to get by and and not get sick, not get sick. Yeah. I, you know, I wish I knew, uh, but I would say, like, look look at AP, you know, in Upton Sinclair's book, he actually talks about having a discussion with, like, an AP editor. And the editor says, you know, I'm a socialist. Like, that, that's what I believe, but I would be fired tomorrow if I allowed any of, of my thoughts about the world to, you know, make it onto the wire. And so... I think lots of journalists absolutely do know better. Some don't, but I think a lot of them absolutely do. It's just these are the rules of the road. Like there is not a whole lot of mm-hmm. uh, of freedom to call things as you see them. I have like two more hours of things I want to talk to you about, but we can't. So promise to come back, okay? Will you come back uh, to talk about things like this? Because uh, it's this has been very uplifting for me just to get into these two, three, four things just in the last month that just disappeared, just disappeared. And I think one of the great things that you do and The Intercept does is to keep us focused on these things and other things, the story behind the story behind the story. And it's it's what you and the others there do so well. You're much needed. And people, if you don't know what The Intercept is, I will have here on this on the platform page of this podcast um, – you will see links, not only to these different things I've referred to that John has, has written about. You can read uh, his writings on this. 
and also to i think basil we should put up uh the link uh, to get uh, upton sinclair's uh, the the brass check I, I mean i think it's incredibly interesting like if you're interested in like this kind of stuff is something that you're into it is like it reads like it was written yesterday uh, and you know it's free online. You know it's a hundred years old. I think the copyright has expired. So go go check it out. It's it's a free book. Yes, uh, uh, and you know it's one I've wanted to read for some time. And I'm now going to re- thank you for the recommendation for me. This will be my book of the week. Um, the but before we go, I, uh, John, just uh, is there anything else we need to be thinking about right now? Maybe something that obviously I haven't brought it up uh, in this episode but you've been thinking about it or something that you want, you are going to be writing about in the next week or two or three. Um, but just to give, give us a, just a hint of, of that or, or to stimulate our own brains in terms of what we should not be ignoring right now. Well, something that I'm working on that should be coming out in the next couple of weeks uh, is about the enormous, like yammering <laughs> about the the idea that the coronavirus escaped from a lab in China. And like, I should say this, like, I really, I'm kind of allergic to speculation about this by people who don't have PhDs <laughs> in this sort of stuff, because like, it is the kind of thing where you, you need a lot of specialized knowledge. But I just want to remind people of the Iraq weapons of mass destruction story because I paid super close attention to that and I was so frustrated by the fact that no one would listen to what I was saying that I actually bet somebody a thousand dollars that Iraq wouldn't have anything wow yeah and the guy came through like he he paid up in the end and one key thing I think you need to understand is that at the time, everybody was like, look, the Iraqi government is acting so suspiciously. Obviously, they're, they're covering up the fact that they have weapons of mass destruction. And the truth is, they were acting suspiciously, and they were covering things up. But they were covering up not the fact that they had weapons of mass destruction, but all kinds of stuff that was totally invisible to us and seems crazy in retrospect. It was stuff like the head of their biological weapons program had secretly destroyed their anthrax at the uh, end of the Gulf War, 1991. So they didn't have anything left. But she would not say where she had destroyed it. And we later found out that the reason, you know, again, it wasn't that they had tons of anthrax that they were hiding. It was that she had destroyed it outside of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces, and she didn't want him to know. <laughs> <laughs> like, And I wouldn't want Saddam you know, to know that about me destroying the anthrax either. Like he can really see where she was coming from. <laughs> so anyway, the point is just that like, I, I have absolutely no idea what the truth is about the coronavirus. And I, I mean, sure, like it's maybe that happened, but the fact that the Chinese government is acting suspiciously, like doesn't get you very far. So I think that's, I think that's something that's important for people to know. And I'm, I'm going to go into sort of more detail about it in this article. Uh, and now there's a second thing. That, uh, that I want to say, I want to make sure that I get this in before the end of the podcast, which is that uh, I am going to reveal your deepest, darkest secret. And I know you're, that probably makes you uncomfortable, Whoa. but I'm- You mean me? You, you mean me? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and But you know, look, like I'm a journalist and my job is to report the truth and just let the chips fall where they may. Now, I, I don't know if your mind immediately went here, but I just want to give you a clue about what I'm about to say. So- 
<laughs> There's a land that I see where the children are free. So <coughs> I think you know where oh. I'm, I'm going here, which is... Okay. <laughs> so you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. Yes. And I know you've been trying to write this out of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> the truth is one of your first papers was, I believe, called Free to Be. Yes, one of my yes in my youth, I I put out a little paper called uh, "Free to Be," <laughs> <laughs> and I actually like honestly, I think that is beautiful because I love that record. People, this again actually is something that has kind of been forgotten. I've been shocked to find, but Marlo Thomas and a bunch of her show business friends put out a record uh, in the 1970s. I think it was also like a TV special or something called "Free to Be You and Me." Right, and it is like I think it's beautiful. Like it's it's like fantastic songs and they're all about you know men should do housework and rosie greer you know this who i think was a defensive lineman is that right yes uh, like right. like this huge guy saying like it's okay for men to cry and it, i it's wonderful but it is sort of a uh, uh a kind of cultural moment that strikes people a little bit strange now yeah i just want to make it clear i had nothing i i was not connected to the free to be TV. This is way back in uh, in Flint uh, when I thought, man, we should start some newspaper or something. Well, what could we call it? I don't know, man. How about like free to be? And, and <laughs> so, so it, it it lasted for about a year or so. And uh, yes, it was called free to be. I'm not ashamed of it. I I uh, there were worse secrets of mine you could have revealed, but uh, but that one I'm. I, I will remain proud of it. And uh, and the fact that I got you, I've never heard you sing. So the fact that you sang on my podcast uh, makes it all the, all the better here. I, I know I wanted to get into talking about this awful vote on the, in the Senate this week on our, all the voting rights uh, things that we we're trying to get past. This, this is not going away. I know people are going to be very active here over the uh, congressional break, over the holiday, to contact their senators in their states and demand that this get passed. And we have to demand that Biden and the Democrats have to get rid of the filibuster. This has got to end right now, or we're not going to get any of these things that we need. I mean, I know you've, I've seen you tweet about this. You talk about this, but man, we, John, we, this is, this is a, a critical moment. Yeah, no, I agree. People should look this up the for the people act. It's incredible to me that the Democrats have not gone absolutely all out to pass this because they need it just to win elections. Like Joe Manchin needs it. Like if he if he wants to run again, it's it would actually change a lot of like the core structural problems of democracy in the United States. And the Democrats need it. Like if if they want to exercise power at any point in the future, like they've got to pass this now. So. Check this out again, like go yell at the people in power, uh, do everything you can. Like if, if you would like for the United States to continue to have any kind of way for normal people to have input into what happens, like, like this has got to happen. Well, I can't say enough about it and I'll be talking about it on social media here this week, next week, our, our upcoming podcast. Um, and, uh, this is my friends, everybody, I don't need to tell you how important this is that we get this passed and we get rid of this filibuster. We're not going to get anything done uh, for the next uh, year and a half. Uh, I guess um, in closing, God, we've covered so much stuff. Uh, I'm, thanks for talking 
about the um, our government paying for and training the assassins of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and in moments like this, too, I just think his family, um, you know, whether it's uh, his family that's here in the U.S., whatever family he has uh, back home in Saudi Arabia or whatever, I, when I read this story here, when this came out this past week, I'm just speaking just as an individual, but I, I feel this stuff individually. I feel this as a person, as an American, that my government, my tax dollars, went to murdering him, and it was done in my name. And so then I take it very personally. And um, so should any friend, family member, whatever, of Mr. Khashoggi, happens to be listening to this podcast, um, I would like to offer my, um, it's not even enough to say this, sincerest apologies, because it's not really an apology until we stop this sort of thing, this, this training that we do and we've always done to help murderers around the world. That's on us, my friends. And uh, John, I'm, I'm so grateful that, um, you come on today so we could talk about this, but I, I, I guess I just wanted to close by offering uh, that to those who knew him personally, to those who were related to him, that um, now even more so, m- myself, you listening to this, John Schwartz, Basil, every all of us, um, um, now we really, really can't let this go, and now we. There really has to be justice, and we have to stop uh, participating in this in this kind of evil doing that uh, so much blood on our hands. And um, I'm uh, I'm sickened by it, and I'll do what I can, and encourage all of you to do what you can uh, to put an end uh, to this. Thank you for letting me say that, John. I just uh, wanted to close by offering that. Uh, out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. And the, the only thing that I would add is that the people who do this count on us getting tired and going away. Right. And like, this is, it's a marathon. Like, we may not find out the truth for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And uh, it's a good reason to stay alive, to keep on fighting and, and finally discover what truly happened. And, and that's the first step to stopping it. So uh, hang in there is my message. Yes, all of us. Uh, yes, now is not the time to give up. And uh, John Schwartz, uh, thank you for the good work that you do. Thank you for all that you did uh, to help me on my projects back in the day and, um, and keep up the important writing uh, that, that you're doing. And, and please come back on, on Rumble uh, sooner rather than later. Oh, absolutely. I would, I would love to. And uh, thanks, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about my, my favorite weird history. Everybody, this is... a. Uh, John Schwartz that we're talking to. Uh, you'll have links on my podcast page here to read some of his uh, writings. And and we're all joining the John Schwartz Book Club, and our first book that we're going to be reading is Upton Sinclair's uh, The Brass Check. <laughs> Thank you so much, John. Thank you. So that's it for today. Thank you for joining me on Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore. My thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, um, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz and everybody else who had any hand in today's episode. Thank you for uh, your support. 
we'll talk to you next week. Have a good weekend. Be well. And don't forget to rumble. Take care. Run free